0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Certain philosophers shake up the world with a new frame of reference, a new central question, a new way to proceed in doing philosophy. In the 20th century, Martin Heidegger was one such figure. This controversial thinker's turn from the Enlightenment's overriding concern for epistemology towards a new and refigured investigation of ontology... Meant that a new philosophical project lay in store for those who followed him. And along with that quest came, for, came a need for a critical assessment of his contributions. One such assessment is S.J. McGrath's 2008 volume, Heidegger, a very critical in- introduction, part of the Intervention series. And Christian Humanist Profiles is happy to welcome Sean McGrath on the program to talk Heidegger with us. Thank you for coming on board, Sean. Thanks, Nathan. I'm happy to be here. Very good. Well, I want to start out by asking you about the Intervention series uh, and where your volume fits in with it. Recently, I interviewed Nicholas Healy about his volume, very critically introducing Stanley Hauerwas. And I know that another volume in the series deals with the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. Now, those two writers self-identify as Christian thinkers, whereas Heidegger decidedly does not. Uh, what's the common thread that makes these Interventions volumes a coherent set? Um,
1: I can't speak for Connor Cunningham and Peter Candler, who are the general editors of the intervention series, but I can say how I understood the series when they approached me about it. Uh, I, in fact, uh, did not know very much about the Center for Theology and Philosophy at the University of Nottingham, uh, where this series has its home. And I even knew less, uh, well, I knew a bit about John Milbank and radical orthodoxy, but I I had no idea uh, how much I had in common with these people until they contacted me on the strength of my first Heidegger book, um, Phenomenology for the God-Forsaking, the the early Heidegger and medieval philosophy. Uh, So Connor approached me and asked me if I wouldn't mind contributing a a very critical introduction for their intervention series. And, And at that point, I understood the series to be um, very pointed introductions rather than general introductions. There's no shortage of introductions to Heidegger, uh, but their their intention was to give a, you know, an an openly critical slant to the introduction, and thereby to make the 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 topic even more accessible. A little bit like the editorial page of the newspaper, where the opinion of the editor is not withheld as it is on the. Cover of the newspaper, the front page of the newspaper, and you get you know the, the objectivity of the front page. But here you get a, an opinion, uh, a very uh, a, and the opinion on this on the subject matter. So I think the intervention series was not essentially to be an apologetical effort in the sense that here we would take on some of the big uh, critics of Christianity. Uh, it would be more universal than that, in, in that it would actually. Uh, introduce certain figures who, for whatever reason, are controversial within the theological community. Mm-hmm. Now, Heidegger's clearly controversial within the theological community for lots of uh, obvious reasons. And, uh, uh, other figures like Stanley Howaross and Hans from von Balthasar, um, it's not so obvious why they, why an intervention in the enthusiasm around these figures would be necessary, uh, theologically. And here I think we need to look a little more carefully at radical orthodoxy and it's quite clear agenda. Um, Mm -hmm. John Milbank is uh, probably the foremost theologian in the world today and his, 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 there's no ambiguity about what he wants to do. Uh, so (laughs) I (laughs) I, I think that the point here is that, uh, while Hans Urs von Balthasar is, of course, the great theologian, and he is to be, uh, he is to be praised, uh, and Stanley Hauerwas has even been invited to uh, radical orthodoxy events. There is nonetheless uh, a need for a critical engagement with these figures from the perspective of radical orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. That's how I understood it.
0: Oh, very good. Now, is, is John Milbank directly involved with the series? Because I, I didn't get that impression from the introduction.
1: Um, he is not directly involved in the series, but everything that the Center for Theology and Philosophy at the University of Nottingham does right. is in okay. the name of Milbank's movement. And Connor Cunningham um, is openly, uh, has, uh, openly expresses his, his allegiance to, to Milbank, um, mm-hmm. so he's the inspiration.
0: All right, very good. I, I, and honestly, I'm glad you said that, because I hadn't made that connection before, and that's, that actually makes a good deal of sense of sort of the common threads among the volumes. Well, turning our attention to your Heidegger, a very, very critical introduction, an early claim that you make is that Heidegger is a good and viable candidate to be a fourth great master of suspicion, along with Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud. What marks Heidegger's brand of suspicion off from the others and what common ground do they share that you can call all four masters of suspicion?
1: Sure. The master of suspicion phrase uh, comes from Paul Ricœur, who wrote a wonderful book on Freud that nobody seems to read, called <laughs> Freud and Philosophy. And in this book, uh, Ricœur says uh, that Nietzsche and Marx and Freud are the masters of suspicion. And by this, he meant that they carry the skeptical project of modernity uh, into an extreme. Uh, the skeptical project of modernity, of course, begins with Descartes' doubting of all, of everything that he has previously learned and suspending all of his presuppositions in order to see if there's at least one claim that he could stand on, one self-evident truth that he could make foundational for the rest of his knowledge. So, and then Descartes, of course, conducts the famous uh, uh, ex- thought experiment of the evil deceiver. Imagine that uh, I had been created by an evil deceiver such that what seemed to me, to be self-evidently true was in fact false. Uh, would, there, would there be a way in which I could purely from the use of my reason find my way out of that trap and arrive at a secure truth? And of course, Descartes arrives at the cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Not even the evil deceiver could take me. Take, could take that claim from me. So you, you have here then, I guess, a first grade of suspicion or skepticism, which launches modernity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Marx. Uh, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud carry this uh, a step further and that is it never, it never occurs to uh, to Descartes that the, the evil deceiver might be his, ver- his reason itself mm-hmm. the evil deceiver is an external force trying to interfere with the natural and normal operation of his reason and then Descartes emerges from the test and says ha ha this you can't take from me. My reason has protected me from your deceit. Uh, And now with Marx, uh, Nietzsche, Freud, in different ways, reason itself is held to be intrinsically deceitful. So you have now a lying consciousness. In Marx, this is, uh, of course, um, the material conditions of history um, uh, are are continually being concealed uh, uh, for reasons that suit uh, the masters and the, uh, the possessors of, of capital. And uh, for Nietzsche, uh, we are so uh, disquieted by the uh, abyssal meaninglessness of historical existence uh, that we're continually crafting fables to protect ourselves from looking at that. And these fables, moreover, serve a double uh, purpose of uh, not only making us feel comfortable, but usually installing us in positions of power. So knowledge is power. And with Freud, mm-hmm. we have, of course, repression. That the ego, uh, the, the condition of the possibility of the existence of the ego, is the repression of the trauma of its origins. So these here in each of these situations, uh, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, a hermeneutical method is needed in order to outflank the self-deception of reason. The, the, the consciousness that lies to itself is, is going to need a special kind of therapy if something is to be done. Uh, so I think Heidegger belongs in this camp, and as much as for Heidegger, uh, of course, uh, Dasein I'm — I'm speaking here of the early Heidegger — Dasein has, has, is not in the truth whatsoever. Dasein, in fact, has a penchant towards uh, falsehood, prefers mm-hmm. the false to the true. And Heidegger takes this up directly from Luther, by the way. You know, it was Luther who objected to the naivete of scholasticism, that according to, the, to, to his understanding of the Bible, uh, the human being doesn't have a desiderium naturale, a natural desire for God, which would then, which would then um, express itself, let's say, in a philosophical theology, extra ecclesiam, or in a natural theology within the church. On the contrary, the human being in its fallen state has an aversion to God, an aversio dei, such that its spontaneous uh, expressions, its its cultural creations, its natural religiosity will be uh, inevitably idolatrous. It hates God. We hate God, and we don't want to think him. We don't want him in our spectrum of possibilities. And the way we deal with this hatred is we produce false gods continually, through philosophy, through culture, and so on. And what Heidegger does in his secularization of Luther, which is what I argued in that first book, is he takes this aversion of God, and he secularizes it, makes it a general aversion to being. So we could call it the aversio essendi, that the human being is forgetful of being, because there is something about uh, being itself which we find uh, horrific and incon- uh, horrific, not just incomprehensible, but actually threatening. Such, and, and, and in order to avoid this threat, we produce our, ma- our great narratives of uh, ontotheology and of metaphysics. So that's the lying consciousness. And so Heidegger needs to find a hermeneutical method to circumvent uh, reason's own. Uh, aversion to being reason's own forgetfulness of being in the same way that Marx and Nietzsche and Freud need a method to circumvent the lying consciousness
0: hmm well, and it's interesting i mean in in the the i guess the early middle section of being in time, I mean you know the vocabulary that he appropriates is largely that of Soren Kierkegaard, who is very concerned with a sort of false consciousness in uh Danish Christendom exactly. So, well, one of the strong shifts that you credit to Martin Heidegger is from the human being as a theoretical knowing to human existence as experienced being. And you praise Heidegger highly for that move. I'd like to hear from you what makes that root level shift so important for the way that we do philosophy.
1: Right. Um, Here, I'm inclined to see Heidegger's, we're still talking about the early Heidegger, Mm -hmm. we have to qualify everything with regard to the late Heidegger, but the early Heidegger, the Heidegger of being in time. I'm inclined to read this book, Being in Time, alongside other great pieces in existentialism. Now, Heidegger is obviously much more than an existentialist. But nonetheless, this book belongs to the canon of existentialism, and I think that's pretty much indisputable. Mm-hmm. So, and and then, then we then the book stands alongside many other things. You mentioned Kierkegaard, for example, certainly um, uh, Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. uh, and and then into the twentieth century, uh, Gabriel Marcel comes to mind, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, mm-hmm. a distribution of existentialist thinkers that spans both sides of the Christian non-Christian spectrum. So there's nothing particularly non-Christian about existentialism. That's the first thing I'd like to say. On the contrary, uh, we could actually say that it is uh, originally a Christian contribution, depending on how we read uh, the primacy of Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky over the Nietzschean tradition. Many cases are happening at the same time. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's not like the the Christian existentialists are copying the atheists and radicalizing their anthropology in the light of Uh, uh, atheist anthropology. On the contrary, the Christian existentialists are writing from the perspective of the modern, particularly late modernity, when science and technology seems to have uh, disenchanted the world and um, made most of the master narratives of the West uh, untenable, and from that perspective reading the New Testament and understanding the role of the human being differently. Uh, so what Heidegger has to contribute here, I think, is a, an, an even more accurate uh, phenomenology of the human being than mm-hmm. we find in Kierkegaard, let's say, Dostoevsky or Gabriel Marcel, although they go in similar directions. Uh, and, and that is that the human being cannot be under, understood in terms that apply to things. The human being is not a thing. That we, that we actually need different categories to speak of human existence categories that are inapplicable to any other domain of existence. Mm -hmm. This is quite radical when you think of um, Christian anthropology up until, let's say, late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, Of course, uh, it's Christianity that produces the, I think, the master concept of human existence, which is the notion of personhood. But until Christian existentialism uh, rethought that notion, even personhood, was articulated in terms that belong to things. So I'm thinking of some of the classic definitions of personhood. For example, the intellectual, uh, intellectual nature, of, or intellectual subsistence, mm-hmm. um, an, an intellectual substance, uh, according to Thomas Aquinas, or uh, this, or a subsistent relation. In, in the tradition of Richard of St. Victor, these are very interesting uh, ways of speaking of the human being. and they show how even even in, at this point, um, human existence challenges uh, traditional ontology in order to stretch itself. So for example, a subsistent relation is actually a, a, a rejigging of Aristotelian categories in such a way as to to, to significantly redefine them nonetheless we still have the language of things here we have the language of substances and their relations mm-hmm. or uh intellectual nature you know the nature of a, an intellectual substance and so on and so the real difference between human existence and the existence of the non-human is concealed and this i think is the, the most important contribution that heidegger makes in uh, in being in time is he uh, By insisting on a different set of terms to discuss human existence, he opens up uh, an anthropology that is uh, quite literally unprecedented in the West.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's fascinating, too, because, you know, as, a, as an undergraduate philosophy major, when I encountered the, the notion of the raised cogitans, the, the thing that thinks, uh, I, I didn't see that as posing any particular problem. Until I read Being in Time and realized, wow, you know, what a what a dehumanizing way to conceive of oneself. Exactly. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the power of being in time, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about this with a number of my friends, especially Michael Farmer, who's another host of this program, uh, is that once you've read Being in Time, you can't remember what it's like not to
1: think as Heidegger thinks. Exactly. Yeah, and and just to add add a bit to that point, just to make something a little bit even clearer, it's not just the negative point that, you know, we will not use the language of things to speak of the human being, but in, in the absence of such a language, we're going to actually construct new terms, new categories, create new concepts adequate to the being of the human being. And I think Heidegger is at his most creative here. So in the beginning of being time, we hear that the human being is a being for whom being is always an issue. Yeah. that is it's a it's a being whose being is determined and defined by care zorga or, or further that a human being is a being for whom being is a project this is the being whose essence is to be not in the sense that uh, you know they exist necessarily uh, mm-hmm. but that, that that but rather that the essence of this being is an outstanding project so the futurity of the human being the way the The human being is a planner, a projector of its being into possible futures. And on the basis of that futurity, a being that lives with a level of anxiety and concern that is unfound anywhere else, for example, in the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. And and, and this is not to diminish the being of animals. It might actually be to elevate them in a certain way. But the the way in which the human being is continually faced with the project of making for themselves uh, making making themselves for themselves or creating themselves is uh, is, is something that is found nowhere else, and it and it requires and, and demands of us a new language. And there's nothing particularly unChristian about this way of thinking of a human being like that.
0: No, I don't think so either. I, and and just to expand on that a little bit, I mean, what notions of human personhood are are available to philosophy before Heidegger starts constructing this vocabulary of Dasein? I mean. What are those alternatives that he's dismantling? And, you know, what changes is he making from those alternatives?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we, yeah. Yeah, we, we, I, I just praised Heidegger very highly. And I, I'm thinking now that, of course, we'll find a lot of interesting material in, in this regard in German idealism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Heidegger's not coming out of—he's not dropping from heaven here. He's coming, <laughs> out of, he's coming out of a tradition of problematizing the being of the human being. But mm-hmm. I think he's carrying it further— uh, than anyone prior to him, and uh, I think his contribution in this regard cannot be uh, cannot be overestimated.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, one of the things that you know marks Dasein as Heidegger begins distru- to construct it is that it is necessarily and not incidentally temporal, uh, and and again, that's a distinction that you know once you have thought your way into it, it's hard to remember what it's like to think otherwise, but what bearing does that necessary temporality have on us, philosophically, if we take him seriously?
1: Uh, Well, what we can see happening here in a certain way is um, that the conception of the human being is now being um, freed from its Greek metaphysical baggage. That is, uh, up until this point, we could say uh, we always spoke of the human being in with in the language of Greek philosophy. there was logos zuon, you know, the rational animal, mm-hmm. or um, the being who possesses an immaterial soul, and so on, whose home is elsewhere, you know, in, in the Neoplatonic tradition. And, and now we're speaking in a very different way, that actually it's not just that the, it's only the human being that's temporal, you know, uh, of course, obviously other things uh, exist in time and suffer change. But Heidegger introduces a new understanding of time such that we we would, we would we are actually compelled and driven to say, well, in this sense of temporality, it is indeed only the human being that's temporal. Temporality is the being of a being who stands before its being as a project, as something that is still to be, the being of a, of, of a being that is ineradicably futural. Mm -hmm. And this means that we don't really have to do with eternity in the way, let's say, that the Neoplatonic Christian tradition would want to say that we do. Eternity is really not our game. It might be the case that eternity has something to do with us, has intervened, but eternity really is not our milieu. Mm -hmm. And for this reason, we can't really conceive of it. And we don't, you know, uh, because we cannot conceive of being outside of time. For us, being is ineradicably temporal. So um, this, again, is not an anti-Christian move, on the contrary, but it is an effort to separate, let's say, the Hellenistic element of Western anthropology from the Jewish Christian element. And I think when we speak about a a being that is essentially temporal, we are on much more Jewish-Christian terrain than we might generally generally think.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, on on a sidetrack and kind of expanding on that, uh, talk to us a little bit then about, I mean, the project that so often occurs in systematic theology of saying with one breath that we as temporal beings cannot conceive of eternity, but then spending seven paragraphs describing in negative terms exactly what eternity must be. I mean, is that a valid philosophical project, or is that something that, you know, would be in bad faith, uh, to borrow one of Sartre's terms, or what's going on when theologians do that?
1: Hmm. It's a difficult question. Um, I'm not—I don't actually believe that the Greek and the uh, the Christian dimensions of Western thinking can be separated from each other. As Mm -hmm. certainly not as cleanly as Luther would have it or as Heidegger would have it.
0: Oh, certainly. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And so, and so somehow theology can never really assume, let's say, a a de-Hellenized, pristinely Jewish Christian perspective on things. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and, and we also have to perhaps reckon with the possibility that if, we're, if we want to speak of, uh, of the history of revelation, that uh, the, just as the, it's not accidental that the revelation occurs uh, with the Jews in, the, in, in Judaism, so is it not uh, accidental that it is first conceptualized within the Greek world. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, the, 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 the way that Greek conceptuality belongs to theology is something I think we have to consider. Uh, so, but I think that when we are talking about negative theology and we're talking about uh, conceptions of eternity, we are generally on, let's say, the Greek side of things. Mm. We're, the, we're with the Greek side of the family at this point, uh, and we're okay. talking—we're talking in Greek terms. We're talking in Greek metaphysical terms. We're talking in Platonic Aristotelian terms, and we're—we're—we're we're, we're, we're dealing with problems that also uh, Neoplatonic thinkers dealt with. Mm-hmm. You know the the inconceivability of certain uh, limit cases. For example, uh, in Plotinus, you know uh, there must be a one that is beyond the one that stands opposed to the many. But of this one, nothing could be said, mm-hmm. because to speak of it is actually to uh, demote it to a position that it does not occupy. Uh, so that there there is this of, of this we, of this we can we cannot speak. We can we merely can gesture and say that it must be. And I think similar. And legitimate uh, activity, uh, the, the theological thinking occurs around the question of eternity. Mm-hmm. But there, of course, is a, another way of speaking about the eternal, which is the Jew. you know, we go with the Jewish Christian side of the family, and we begin to speak about the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. which is not exactly eternity, is it? But it belongs to the Jew, to the way in which we conceive of these things. And the kingdom of God is intri- intrinsically a historical matter, that it is it is that which has been promised to us, and that which we await and that which we we get we see signs of in the course of history, but which we know is always still to come. And what it will bring is a new creation, um, mm. a new way of being temporal. You could say not the not the dissolution of time, as though time was a soap bubble or uh, an illusion into in which we are trapped. That, that's that's the Greek side of the family, but, but rather a new kind of temporality, a kind of temporality that, that does not have as its condition loss. And and uh, and and privation. Um,
0: Well, sure. And I mean, and listening to you, I mean, a couple thoughts occur to me. One is that you know, to stand in opposition to Neoplatonic thought is still to exist in relationship with Neoplatonic thought. So that you know, to to say that we are going to be not Hellenic uh, is still to be in relationship to Hellenism. But the other thing that occurs to me is that. Uh, you know the kingdom of God. You're right. Is something that is intelligible only in temporal categories.
1: Exactly. Uh,
0: so it you know it remains uh, a very human horizon. So that's interesting. I well I, I want to get back to your book because that's what we're here to talk about. But uh, when you turn towards a critique of Heidegger, your main line of argument, as I read it, has to do with the inevitably moral character of ontology when we do ontology as a philosophical project. Now, in your argument, how does Heidegger go wrong on that score? And if a Christian thinker is interested in taking the best from Heidegger, but leaving behind the, this sort of troubled attempt at moral neutrality, what might the resulting philosophy start to look like?
2: Well,
1: This is a very big question. And uh, just for the record, this is where I've gotten uh, the... the uh, I've suffered a tr- uh, quite a beating from the Heideggerians on this point. <laughs> I, so I don't doubt that for a moment. <laughs> uh, this, is where, this is where the Heideggerians and the non-Heideggerians part company on this question. Okay. Uh, that said, I, I, have, uh, I have some heavyweights on my side. Um, people like uh, Max Shaler or Jacques Derrida who also criticized Heidegger on this score. Uh, so that's just by way of uh, uh, an introduction to the board. Uh, but essentially what i understand heidegger to be doing in being in time is on the basis of his very sound observation which is not even original to him this is not one of his original moments that being is not a being the the so-called ontological difference uh, heidegger says that this uh, this has remained concealed until this uh, auspicious moment in the history of philosophy when he unveils it uh, that being and being are two really that to speak of the being of a being is to uh, ipso facto, by that very speech, distinguish being from being uh, or, the, or the being of, of, of anything whatsoever from things.
0: If only there were italics in a, an audio recording.
1: Yeah, That's right. It's a bit <laughs> difficult, but it's, it's, it's somewhat easier in German because they have different words. So, ah, das Sein and das Sein, you know, uh-huh. so in other words, the point is simply that being is not a thing. But it is uh, it is it is what belongs to things insofar as things are. But being itself is not a thing. Uh, this ontological difference, by the way, is not discovered by Heidegger. One finds it all throughout the history of philosophy. It is found in Thomas Aquinas as the distinction between essay and uh, essentia. Uh, it's found uh, in, in Friedrich Schelling. Uh, in every stage of his work, actually, you know, from the very early work to the very late work. So Heidegger's posing a little bit here. So okay. no, no problem with ontological difference. In fact, the existentialist, existentialist Thomas, I don't know if anybody reads them anymore, Gilles saint wonderful stuff. Uh, they are absolutely articulate on this, articulate on this. that essay should not be confined to things. It's actually the act by which things are, and ultimately it has a divine element to it, which is, which makes it totally inappropriate to speak of it as a thing. Fine, ontological difference. But then Heidegger says ontological difference uh, is, is, the, is the— the recognition of ontological difference is the grounds for methodologically separating ontological inquiry from ontic investigation. Ontological inquiry concerns being as being— ontic investigation concerns being insofar as it is, is bound up with things, thingly being, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sounds all very reasonable. But then one looks for, further and one finds that this is not simply just a way of like demarcating a place for philosophy to make, do its work outside the natural sciences. You know, the natural sciences are clearly an ontic concern. You know, in, in chemistry, talk about uh, chemicals, chemicals, elements, so on. In physics, we talk about uh, forces. Uh, But actually, uh, there are quite a few other things on the ontic side of the fence, uh, which have been sort of uh, relegated to one side, including theology and politics slash ethics. So here's where things get a little difficult. So we're going to have an ontological investigation of being, uh, which will hold in suspension the question concerning the ethical, the, the political, the questions concerning the ethical, the political, the theological. And this is where I I have difficulty, Um, because, of course, what happens is that uh, Heidegger is able to rearrange the ethical, the political, and the theological substantively from the ground up by silencing them in ontological inquiry. This happens very clearly in his essay, Phenomenology and Theology, where he says, well, if theologians are talking really about the events of the New Testament— uh, and and the mode of the mode of existence which is made possible by faith in the New Testament. Fine, I have nothing to say about that. But when they start mucking around in ontology, they are transgressing the boundaries uh, proper to their discourse. They must receive their concepts of being from philosophical ontology. They have they can have nothing to say about this in the same way that a natural scientist can have nothing to say about the nature of being in itself, but receives that kind of. Uh, uh, That kind of work from the ontologies. Mm -hmm. And what in fact happens then, of course, is that certain presuppositions are then built into ontology, uh, which otherwise a theologian, an ethicist, a morally inclined thinker would have objected to before they even got on the ground.
0: Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this before you go further. I mean, would you regard this as somewhat analogous to the move that Michael Novak and other sort of Roman Catholic capitalist thinkers make when they say that a theologian operating as a theologian should not speak in the realm of economics, but should defer to the experts over
1: there? Absolutely. I find this to be a, a, a drearily modernist move, Mm-hmm. I find to be Heidegger at his least interesting at in this point, and it, you know he's not—he's saying something that's not all that different from what Husserl said when he said, "Well, you know, phenomenology doesn't decide for or against a God or the existence of God, and has nothing really to say about the good, uh, but has a uh, has a kind of scientific purview, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, is it, which which can be rigorously pursued in the suspension of these questions." And so the whole, let's say, the whole Nietzschean critique, if you like, of knowledge, power. Is, is, uh, is, is being ignored here. Mm-hmm. There is a kind of view from nowhere which is being advocated here, that uh, the ontologist actually has a kind of morally neutral, theologically uncommitted, neither here, neither for nor against, which allows him to do his work in a more scientific fashion. And this of course is not the case. The ontolog- the ontic has always already played a role in the ontological invest- investigation. Namely, it is the orientation of the ontologist itself, himself or herself, you know, their theological commitment or lack thereof, their moral orientation, their sense of what the political should or should not be. And so we find, surprise, surprise, that Heidegger's morally neutral, theologically neutral ontology of Dasein is fully compatible with Fascism, amazing, mm-hmm. right. and deeply critical of d- democracy, incredible, and in fact silences a whole whole schools of theology which would presume that uh, uh, which would presume a metaphysical access to the theological or a metaphysical theology or a natural theology, a philosophical theology. Here, I mean, you know, traditional Roman Catholic natural theology. This sure. is actually decommissioned by a neutral ontology. I find this amazing absolutely amazing, disingenuous. So in its place, I say, with, let's say, Levinas, who said that metaphysics and ethics are equi-primordial, they're both, they happen at the same time, or with my, my current research interest, Friedrich Schelling, who I think is the great Christian philosopher of the 19th century, perhaps the greatest, every ontological concept is always already a moral concept, that one does not postpone the ethical-political, until one has sorted out one's metaphysical commitments or metaphysical categories. On the contrary, one has to recognize that moves made on the metaphysical level presuppose ethical decisions and theological orientations. And this makes philosophy a much messier business than early Heidegger, Husserl, lots of other modernist thinkers would like, because it means that we're always already Working in the ethical, political, theological range, so we we need to have a we need to be able to do both at the same time. We need to know what you know the left hand needs to know what the right hand is doing. As we write our ontology, we need to realize actually that we are in some respect prescribing modes of existence, uh, forms of political life uh, and and theological possibilities at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's where I see your project. I mean, definitely being part of that radical orthodoxy project in that you are in some ways, I mean, outflanking the hermeneutics of suspicion that one might find in being in time by calling it into suspicion in turn, uh, exactly. but, you know, doing so in a way that, you know, uh, positions itself. I mean, to use uh, one of, you know, Milbank's metaphors uh, as, you know, a discourse that will situate the other discourse. So I, you know, once again, I, you know, our listeners, in in case you hadn't noticed already, I'm a fan of this book and I'm a fan of the Radical Orthodox Project in general, precisely because it says that the thinker is part of the world and the world is the, the matter which the thinker must engage. So, um, I, I don't know where that was going, but, uh, but, this like day,
1: but, but it, it's not. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that, especially since the Heideggerians hate it so vociferously and expressively. Uh, it's nice to have the other side cheer along as well. But, uh, you know, it's not specifically a radical orthodox claim. So this is where I was surprised. I mean, I hadn't done any work on radical orthodoxy when I came to this. I was coming at this through people like, you know, G.K. Chesterton or um, – or Kierkegaard, you know, for that matter, and and now lately, I, I find uh, the late Schelling to be quite a, an ally, or, or Levinas, who completely floored me when I really f- sat down to study what he was doing in totality and infinity. You know, one doesn't include Levinas uh, and and Schelling in any case in the radical orthodoxy project. No, so no, just means- a, a recognition that metaphysics is a moral practice. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. that, that this is the situation of finitude that we we we, we make decisions, uh, we risk commitments. There is no self-evident truths that can be universally uh, accepted or seem to be universally accessible to all. Who we are as people determines what kinds of propositions we're able to commit ourselves to. Our character is at issue in our ontology, so we should attend to it.
0: Well, one thing that, I mean, you really can't avoid, or I guess you shouldn't avoid when you talk about Heidegger, is precisely the question of National Socialism, anti Semitism. Now, according to most accounts of Heidegger that I've read, and I think I would include yours in this group, he was with Nietzsche in considering racism as an ideology somewhat moronic, frankly. But also, like Nietzsche, he also thought that Jewish thought as a set of ideas was an obstacle to be overcome. In the Name of Good Philosophy. Could you say a bit more for our our listeners about that tension between, I mean, he doesn't want to be identified with the racists, but on the other hand, he is decidedly anti-Jewish.
1: Sure. I'll try to say something. Of course, this question is all over the press right now because of the publication of the black journals, the Schwarz's heft, the journals that Heidegger kept when he was the uh, rector of Freiburg University. And then afterwards, um, in which it becomes uh, at least clear to those who didn't notice it, uh, that Heidegger uh, had some pretty nasty things to say about the Jews. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. Uh you know, uh but was he an anti Semite? Well, in a certain way he was, but it's but he he did not in fact subscribe to the kind of what he called the biological racism of the Nazis. But again, that, that would be far too ontic a way uh to speak about this issue for Heidegger. It's not because of um, you know, blood and family name. That someone is to be, let's say, excluded from the political. Uh, Heidegger doesn't disagree that people should be excluded from the political, but he doesn't think that it should be decided on the basis of something so, uh, let's say, crassly materialistic as uh, race. In those terms, Um, that and so and so we we can you know for every for every uh, faculty member whose career was ruined uh, by Heidegger's denunciation, including. Husserl himself, uh, there was another Jewish faculty member, student who was saved by Heidegger's intervention, you know, including people like Hannah Arendt. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so he, he didn't, he wasn't being inconsistent in this regard. He did not actually think the problem with Judaism is, you know, uh, is, a, is a material biological matter. They're not the rats uh, that infect uh, the Aryan race that need to be exterminated because uh, in, in this way. That said, uh, what he says in the, in the Schwarzes heft, and again, it didn't surprise me at all, uh, was that the Jews are world poor. I don't have the German in front of me, but something to that effect. The Jews are the ones without a world, which is pretty harsh language because elsewhere he's described animals as world poor. You know, uh, and for Heidegger, world is a technical term. It means that, you know, that environing uh, uh, circumference of uh, inter- interconnected concerns, which we call culture, uh, mm-hmm. and, and and which a human and around which a human being finds themselves. So but what Heidegger is saying there uh, it can be interpreted in, in a number of ways, of course for Heidegger the Nazi, to describe them as world poor, is is really to exclude them from the project of building, let's say, the new Germany. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Heidegger at this point is uh, deeply involved in what I think we should call political naturalism. You know? not Notwithstanding his objections to a superficial and materialistic approach to race, he's deeply interested in the politics of blood and soil, mm-hmm. or what he calls Bodenstandigkeit, as a, as a way of objecting to the the, the, the deracination, the, uh, the uprootedness of, uh, of modern life, the way technology makes location and tradition somehow accidental to the identity of the individual, there is this reaction to reaffirm uh, the belonging of the individual to a certain place, a certain spot of the earth, a certain tradition, a certain heritage. And then to reappropriate that heritage, uh, the individuals called to, to take on that heritage for themselves in a kind of uh, decisional way. So, the, this is, of course, uh, this is a, this is Heidegger's, uh, you know, back to earth kind of uh, philosophy. Uh, this is the Heidegger who loves the Black Forest and wanders mm-hmm. around and venerates the crosses too in the Black Forest because, as he says, where so many have prayed before, there the holy must be. Um, but it is not, of course. Uh, a political this political naturalism is going to vilify the one who doesn't belong really anywhere and the jews are the wandering people they are the nomads their promised land uh, was long taken from them and mm-hmm. occupied by others and uh, they then uh, adapted quite well to the situation of the diaspora and integrated themselves into cultures uh, and civilizations all over Europe and beyond. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so much so that they were indistinguishable from the from the people uh, that, the peoples that they lived with. That's their problem, according to Heidegger. Right. They are they are too much of a modern people, if you want. Like. Or right. the pro- that, that, what an odd thing to say. But the problem with modernity is that it it it, it uh, does not allow uh, to, to the human being its belonging to place. Uh, it, it, mm. it, it, it abstracts the individual from place, and the Jews are the people who have been, by history, abstracted from place. Mm-hmm. Well, I well, it's fascinating, to say, too, yeah.
0: because in the Enlightenment era, anti-Judaism was usually framed in exactly the opposite terms, that the Jews refused to relinquish their particularity you know, to join the sort of cosmopolitan vision of the reasonable society.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, precisely because they have no land of their own, their identity is bound up with other kinds of traditions, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to do with the color of your hair and, the, your, you know, your last name and where, you're, where you were born and where your grandparents were born. But it has to do with your fidelity to the practices of Israel. You're belonging to the promised people, right. uh, the chosen people. And this uh, means that the Jews are the ones who will never fit, fit into any kind of political naturalism. Mm-hmm. And that does... And that, from our perspective now, this is no disadvantage whatsoever, <laughs> because political naturalism is a, a nasty bit of business, right? This is mm-hmm. this is where fascism uh, becomes a, a possibility, and this is where nationalism takes an ugly turn. You know, our, our natural right, you say, to to love what is our own, that becomes ugly when uh, when the political becomes fused with the natural in that kind of blood mm-hmm. and soil uh, uh, mythology. Yeah. Um, The Jews can never be guilty of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I just want to make a little note about this, because it's very interesting. The late Schelling's lectures on the philosophy of mythology and revelation, which have not been translated, uh, in in the philosophy of mythology, uh, Schelling says something similar. He says, actually, the Jews... He doesn't say they're world poor, but that the Jews stand, stand out from all other peoples because they were not tied to the land in the way other peoples were. They were not identified with a specific place, but had a kind of mobility. And then Schelling says it is precisely because of this uh, freedom uh, from, let's say, uh, uh, freedom from, uh, from, 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 from uh, blood and soil, mm-hmm. that they were the ones to whom the real God could entrust his revelation. Hmm. It, is there, it is actually what makes them uh, supreme among all peoples.
0: Right. Well, and it also calls to mind uh, the post-war uh, Japanese novelist Kobo Abe uh, always admired the Jews as the, the people without a homeland. And one time a, a magazine interviewer asked him, well, what about the state of Israel? And his response was just, well, I don't think
1: of those as really Jews. <laughs> well, it, 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 you know, without getting too controversial, one does notice that the uh, the, um, the 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 artificial creation of a homeland for the rootless people uh, yeah. has not been uh, the most successful political intervention in recent history. Right,
0: and I and I don't necessarily want to entangle you in that controversy. I, <laughs> I'd rather talk about your book. <laughs> um. So going back to the book, when you turn to Heidegger's troubled relationship to theology, you spend a fair bit of time critiquing his move towards separating philosophy and, and ontology, especially, from theology too cleanly. And you've talked about that a little bit. As, if you were to propose an alternative to that for theologians, again, who are trying to appropriate what's good in Heidegger but to step beyond his shortcomings, would you suggest some version of an analogia entus? Or is there a third way before us beyond Heidegger, but not necessarily back with Thomas Aquinas?
1: Yeah, this is a very difficult question. This is maybe one of the more difficult questions uh, you've asked me. <laughs> and I probably would have answered it differently 10 years ago. Okay. And I was more or less steeped in Thomism. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> the Analogia Entis is a fascinating doctrine, and I think misunderstood. Uh, in some respects, the way I understand etologia entis is that the um, there is a relation among different things, philosophy and theology. What is the relationship of philosophy to theology? Philosophy. Uh, to, uh, and theology are two. How are they to be connected by the theologian? Well, I, I think the first thing to do in this regard, but let's let's postpone analogia entis for a moment, is to not concede the validity of this question, because wow. the theologian, the theologian should not actually concede to the philosopher that where the theologian is caught up in some kind of uh, uh, concrete uh, faith-based. Um, uh, religiously relative uh, discourse, uh, the philosopher has uh, the, has uh, uh, occupied the view from nowhere. We, we should not concede this position. The first thing we should recognize is that there is no philosophical position in general. There are philosophical positions, and going back to the intermingling of the ontic and the ontological, these philosophical positions are motivated by ethical and theological commitments, or lack thereof, of individual philosophers. Okay. So We're in no. The theologian is in no kind of weak position vis-à-vis the the uh, the the neutrality of the philosopher. Mm -hmm. So that that changes things a little bit, you know, Uh, because we're not we're not here trying to uh, integrate uh, parallel discourses so much as try to trying to find a way through a variety of theoretical positions, some of which describe themselves as explicitly philosophical, others as theological. Um, from, from one perspective, you could actually say, I think, that, that it's all theology. <laughs> mm. There is just the theology of those who don't believe and the theologies of those who do. <laughs> mm. um, and and then, then the whole discussion is on a different terrain. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm inclined towards this. And this is why I, I actually am deeply interested in non foundationalist philosophy, in the critique of foundationalism uh, in postmodernism, post structuralism, Derrida, Foucault, and so on, uh, because it's actually um, divesting philosophy of that superior status, uh, which it arrogates to itself typically over and against theology. And this divesting is coming from within philosophy itself. So that would be the first thing I would say. The theologian does not have to correlate theology with some kind of self, self-sufficient self scientific uh, philosophical discourse on the other side of the fence, mm-hmm. but rather negotiate a much more messy affair where um, various ethical theological positions are being uh, inflated into uh, total systems of meaning uh, and, uh, uh, and, and with with their own ethical theological orientation concealed from the get go. So there's a destruction deconstruction that should happen. Theology should deconstruct philosophy and not correlate itself to it. That mm-hmm. that's one thing I would say. The other thing I would say about analogia entis is that the uh, even in Aquinas, it's not entirely clear what it means. I mean, Scotus rejected the. Doctrine because he thought it was agnostic. Yeah, we would do well to remember that. Scotus believed that Thomas Aquinas' doctrine of the analogy of being left theology vulnerable to agnosticism. Why would he say that? I think he says it because Aquinas defers the meaning, the ultimate meaning of theological terms. Now, this might get a little technical. I'll try to make it as simple as possible for your listeners. Um, there are, there is. Our, in our language of God, we habitually and necessarily draw on the language of creatures in order to figure for ourselves uh, the nature of God. So we say uh, we say that my God is a rock, uh, I can stand firm here, or our God is a lion. Uh, these are classic examples drawn out of the Old Testament. A mighty person here- is our God. Exactly. And here here, uh, Aquinas says we have to recognize that there's nothing really fortress-like about God, lion-like about God, or rock-like about God. These are terms that are are being applied to to, to God as as metaphors, and Mm -hmm. uh, they they create a certain aura of meaning, but ultimately they need to be negated, and we can say with equal justification that God is not a lion, God is not a fortress— God is not a rock. But, Aquinas says, there are terms that we use regularly, which, in fact, do primarily apply to God, not to things. And we use these terms of of things. Terms like good, true, uh, beautiful, the transcendentals. Mm -hmm. Uh, This this language has a divine logic to it. Or or more technically, the primary... uh, Analogate, primary referent if you want, in such language is... The way the terms apply to the divine, and not to the derivative way that they apply to things. This is exactly the reverse, in the, as in the case of the metaphor. You know, we could say, "Well, God is like a lion, if you like, in the way that he uh, in the way that he comes to the succor of the people of Israel against its enemies." Uh, but uh, we must say then, well, technically speaking, uh, lion primarily refers to a certain kind of animal, and not to God right mm-hmm. but with the, with the language with the with the with the let's say the language that has a divine logic the primary referent is god not the thing so it, when i say my lunch is good <laughs> i use good in a derivative way uh, and the primary meaning of the good applies to god as the good but here's the rub we don't understand the primary referent it exceeds our comprehension it is not given to us And so we use theological terms without—we can know that such theological terms refer to God with certainty, but we do not understand how they refer. The modi significandi is concealed to us. And Aquinas is, in effect, saying we can use certain terms with precision, but in absolute obscurity about what they mean. That is an extremely interesting doctrine. And I think it really could be understood in a variety of ways. And I think the Thomists actually are far too conservative in their understanding of analogia <laughs> entis. The way I would understand it is that the primum analogatum, the primary referent in technical theological language, is not given, it is still to come. So mm-hmm. the, analogia, the analogia entis could be understood in an eschatological way as a a language that defers its defers comprehension to the full revelation of the divine, which is still to come. And then we're in a different kind of place with our theological language. We're not mm-hmm. commanding. We're not claiming a master, the kind of mastery over it that the wrong kind of scholasticism always always produced. You know, there is no there is that that kind of certainty, that smug sort of uh, 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 having a key that opens every door, which not too many of us like anymore, uh, th- th- this doesn't seem to me to be the implication of analogia oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. So I, I th- I'm much more interested in a theology which is at home with the poverty of language in the face of the divine, and yet is empowered to speak of the divine, uh, but it must do so with the provisionality of um, of analogia. That is, knowing that it's that it's that that the way it understands its terms it will be taken from it, and the proper meaning granted to it. But this is the future. It's not the past or the present. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as your
0: book finishes the critique of Heidegger from your Christian and humanist perspective, and I can get behind both of those, of course, I want to read to you two of your statements towards the end of the book, and I want to give you a moment to preach to us a bit on each of them. The first is dignity is ineradicably dialogical, and the second is likened to the first, Christianity is not finished with us. Speak a word to us, Preacher McGrath.
1: <laughs> oh, that's very dangerous, you know. I always wanted a pulpit. I never got one. <laughs> um, I, this, the notion of dignity is one of those terms that gets tossed around far too much. Yeah, It's a used-up word. It's what I, Heidegger calls idle talk. We use it all the time, especially in in theology, but also increasingly, you know, also in human rights context, the dignity of the individual, the dignity of the human being. What exactly does this mean? Uh, And in the course of kind of investigating this term when I was writing the book, it struck me, it's very interesting that the um, medieval usage of the term dignity is quite different from the modern usage of the term. The The medieval term dignity, dignatus is uh, as Thomas Aquinas will present it, is a kind of a reverence that is due to uh, sovereignty, to to royalty. It is, you know, the dignity uh, which is a, a kind of uh, an obedience, a reverence that an inferior uh, owes to that individual who is by nature placed above him. Mm -hmm. And uh, this struck me as interesting because, first of all, it underscores how different the modern context is from the medieval context. You know, Roman Catholic apologists will continually talk about the dignity of the human being as being sort of an obvious thing all down through history. Well, actually, it's not a Thomistic claim whatsoever. It's a very modern claim in as much as it has now uh, universalized what Thomas Aquinas regards as the reverence due to a few— uh, it has universalized it to all people by virtue of their, their, all, their each of them being in their own way imago dei, an image of God. So that's a little plug, I think, for um, uh, modernity, you know, from a philosopher myself who doesn't always have the best things to say about the modern. Uh, but there is something that has happened in the modern which uh, has fundamentally changed the way we speak about people, and it's done so in a positive way. Uh, mm. Now, the second thing I find about dignity that's interesting is that it is deferred, it is, it is conferred on the other. Dignity is given to the other. So it's not this, this kind of inalienable possession of an individual, like the individual has his dignity as though in the same way that he has his own bank account, you know, or that he, he, he's, got, he's got the right to his property this is of course the way we speak of dignity right as something that belongs intrinsically to the person and cannot be taken from them because it's theirs by right and by nature the atomic isolated individual of the liberal myth is here of course uh brought in and dignity the dignity of the individual made a kind of a a predicate of individuals um in fact in the medieval model uh, the dignity must be uh, granted to the to the individual by others it should be which doesn't mean of course that it can that it can be morally denied them mm-hmm. it is i think what we need to do here is to put the two together and see that actually dignity is the community's responsibility to the individual and can be in no case denied any individual every individual by virtue of being an image of god is due this kind of reverence, which we call dignity, we see them as being, you know, and here everything follows. They can never become a means to another end. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are free. Uh, they have a freedom of conscience. They have rights and so on. This is the conferral of dignity that the community owes the individual. And this is why it's dialogical. That is, uh, all by myself, without others, without community, without one who sees me and loves me and calls me an I and who i recognize as a thou uh i don't uh my dignity goes unrecognized um and that, you know it has a further implication too with regard and i think i got into this in the book with regard to the individuals who are lacking certain kinds of abilities which we deem to be essentially human like right? mm-hmm. the individual who cannot reason or who cannot speak uh, what do we do with them and, and these typically have Produce problems for Enlightenment thinkers. You know, Kant famously said that uh, children are not quite uh, due uh, the kind of respect that an adult is due because they're they're not fully rational. And at different times, women have been denied this, and the mentally retarded, and uh, you know, uh, what do we do with in these cases? In the extreme cases. And, and this touches bioethical issues too. I mean, what do we do with the embryo? What do we do with the the child who's born uh, uh, with such a damaged brain that it'll actually never be able to look at itself in the mirror and, and recognize itself? Uh, is this just a? Are we just cast uh, such such um, such unfortunate people aside? And here I think that the dialogical nature of dignity comes in because if that dignity then is a. a, a a function of the community recognizing its humanity in the other, then it's not bound up with any particular set of predicates. It's not because you can talk or you can reason or you can uh, walk around uh, th- that, that, that your dignity is granted to you by the community. It's because humanity recognizes its own humanity in you. That was the point I tried to make at the end of the book.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How about Christianity is not finished with us?
1: Yeah, that's a, that was a topic that still haunts me. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything I write uh, seems to kind of uh, revolve around this. And increasingly, it's, uh, my work is, uh, it is uh, focusing on secularity, secularism, consumerism, uh, questions of economy, um, and recognizing uh, the Christian, uh, the Christian origins of these things. So political theology. Um, I think that Christianity is routinely underestimated uh, by both Christians and non-Christians. Um, you know, we, we, we denominated uh, inadequately when we refer to it, you know, as a world religion mm-hmm. um, or, uh, Uh, We speak of it as a as in our uh, in our liberal culture as something that still concerns some people in their private lives, uh, but that the political and the socio political has by and large left behind with medieval uh, medieval society. When one understands how intrinsically uh, entwined in uh, in our in our scientific and political discourse, Christianity is one recognizes that there is no question that it continues, <laughs> that it is still at play. Um, so we talked about dignity a moment ago. Uh, we can talk about the notion of freedom, which is actually absent in all of Greek philosophy. And to, to my, the best of my knowledge, it's absent in Buddhism, in Hinduism, and, uh, it, it's absent everywhere. Uh, Everywhere, the gospel was never heard or appropriated. Uh, it's a basically Christian conception, freedom. Uh, and it's a conception with which, without which we cannot think the human being in any context, any kind of secular context. Uh, we will not understand what this term means without an understanding of Christianity. So the great danger of our age is that we are actually um, in the process of basically distorting all of our basic conceptions about ourselves and our society uh, by virtue of our refusal to take very seriously that we are the Christian heritage. And now I can say that the we is no longer just Western, but in a very disturbing way, it becomes planetary. Mm -hmm. Because among the many things that have been produced by Christianity, and they're they're not all good, uh, uh, has emerged, and not only technology, science and technology, I think, would not be what they are without uh, without, uh, Christianity, uh, but also economy. I I don't think there would be anything like consumerism without Christianity. I think consumerism is a Christian monster. Mm -hmm. And when India... Uh, surrenders, let's say, its traditional ways of life, traditional ways of organizing their societies, uh, traditional attitudes to birth, life, and death, and assumes consumer attitudes, which they are now in a kind of feverish way, uh, they become in a certain way Christians. But but a different kind of Christianity, a Christianity that's in disavowal of itself, a Christianity that has uh, in in its own kind of uh, uh, identity crisis uh, given birth to its opposite. You know, the Antichrist belongs to the Christian universe, can only be possible within it, right? So I see that globalization and secularization and the corporate, you know, the consumer capitalist juggernaut Uh, the Anthropocene, uh, the fate of the world right now, as fully part of the phenomena of Christianity. Uh, So this is both uh, good and bad news for theology, of course. I mean, it's good news in as much as, uh, don't worry, uh, God really didn't die. At least yeah. not in the sense, not in the sense that uh, that uh, our culture likes to think that it happened. I mean, in another sense, God absolutely died on the cross, but that was the very beginning of the uh, of, of the of of the whole thing. Uh, so that uh, you know, Christianity well is not going to disappear. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's made a terrible mess of things. It's our mess, and it is our responsibility. So we need to reown the things that we have produced. I mean, we need to recognize that Christianity is, from the beginning, a secularizing religion. This argument has been made quite articulately by people like uh, Marcel Gaucher, uh, Gianni Vatimo, uh, Max Weber. Secularization is not something that happens to our happy little Christian world, but it's something that Christianity, and I'd include Judaism as the background, uh, unleashes on a world that is religious in a different way. We also need to recognize that the kinds of spirituality, the kind of spirituality that pervades consumerism uh, would not be possible without Christianity. And here I think we need to first see that consumerism is no non-spiritual matter. Consumerism fulfills people on every level, you know? and one has to only look at advertisement a little more carefully to see that what's being, what's being, we are not being seduced by crass uh, hedonism actually our highest sense of values are being addressed by the ad uh, either through flattery and threat and they typically uh, they typically uh, focus in on this conception of the individual who has its dignity and its freedom to make of itself what it will a mm. basically christian notion good word good word <laughs>
0: Well, Sean, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. In the spirit of hospitality, I want to let you have the last word today. What have we neglected so far in our conversation that you want our readers to hear about your book, about Heidegger, about whatever it is you want to talk about
1: here at the end? Uh, I felt like I've already said too much, but I always—I also feel like uh, you know I've not said uh, enough. Um, I would like to make it more comprehensible, and it always comes out in such a complicated way. So I really appreciate the effort, and I really want to salute what you're doing um i think uh um uh, this is one of the wonderful surprises of the internet is that it's become a much more audio based uh, media mm. and uh, we, we have the return of uh, radio who would ever have expected <laughs> it and with that i think that uh, you know the intellectuals uh, are now have a now now have an opportunity to speak to a much wider populace and i'm deeply interested in that so i just want to salute you what you're doing and uh, delighted you contacted me Delighted there exists such a thing as the Christian humanist uh, circle.
2: Very
0: good. Well, I thank you for your good word there. Uh, Well, listeners, the book is Heidegger, a very critical introduction. It's published by Erdmans, and the author is S.J. McGrath. Uh, Sean, I want to thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Nathan.
0: And listeners, I thank you for listening to another episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. Tune in for our next fascinating interview.
2: Good day.